Welcome, Al and Jim. Al, you wrote a book uh, several years ago, I think around, uh, uh, it was published around 2010, called To Train the Fleet. And I'd like to talk about that a little bit today. It's a v- interesting. What was the premise of the book? Uh, there were two themes, um, I guess is the best way to uh, say it. The first was, um, <clears throat> how do we fight a war if you have to do it tomorrow? You know, right now we got to, you know, we got to go. Um, and the second was to to test things. So one of the things tested, of course, was the war plan. The other was they would bring in new technologies like airplanes and aircraft carriers and uh, uh, experimenting with new ways of organizing the fleet. You know, uh, like if you look at the British Grand Fleet at Jutland, it's organized in in a box. There, there are several, you know, several lines of battleships, one, one next to the other, and it's a big square thing. And if you look at the uh, the way the U.S. fleet is uh, operating in World War II, it's like a blob. It's 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 a series of sort of circles. Uh, but those that series of circles was developed through a lot of experimentation because it made moving into action faster. And it took a while to, to to figure out how to do that. You know, because uh, it involved a lot, a lot of complex communications and and a lot of training. Uh, and then there were experiments in uh, radio communication. They were, they were trying to figure out a way to to communicate using underwater radio, so to speak. Now that that didn't work, but they didn't know that until they tried it. You know, uh, and uh, and then there was just to see, you know, the the fleet had to operate for days and days, sometimes weeks at a time under more or less wartime conditions, how did this affect, you know, everything? Resources, uh, fuel, fuel consumption, how do you refuel at sea? That was a big, uh, slowly developed during uh, every one of these. Over, over something like 18 years, they did 20, uh, 20, uh, 20 23 22 um, major maneuvers where basically almost the entire fleet was out there uh, pretending to be, to have a war with you know half the fleet against the other half of the fleet. Um, even so, so they could refine techniques that we take for granted, like that in the Second World War. You know, in the Second World War, um, if you sent a letter to the to your uh, to your son in the fleet, he would get it. They actually had worked that out already during the maneuvers. Or um, uh, what do you do with the fleet's garbage? No one paid attention to it. And then one, during the maneuvers one evening, uh, this admiral goes out onto the quarter deck of his battleship and is having a smoke. And he casually watches as the, as the, the cooks come up and throw overboard, uh, you know, all sorts of slop and whatnot. And he's sitting there, and in the moonlight, the, the, the garbage is slowly drifting back through the wake of the ship. And he suddenly says, gee, you know, somebody could follow us tracing our garbage. So after that, the Navy introduced uh, garbage grinding facilities where you took the trash and you mashed, you ground it up into a slurry and poured that into the water. And, of course, that quickly dissipated. So the idea was to 
get the fleet ready to fight at the drop of a hat. And to, as we're practicing how to do that, how to do the fighting, uh, think of ways that we might improve our ability to do the fighting. That, that's kind of it in a nutshell. So what did they learn about aircraft carriers? Because, you know, we still were battleship heavy at the start of World War II until after Pearl Harbor. Well, actually, that's not true. Um, one of the myths, the airmen, especially the Air Force airmen, of course, put out. And then there was that terrible picture with, uh, uh, gosh, I can't even remember now, uh, which which made that claim. But in fact, in the very first maneuver in which airplanes were used in in the series of 20-some exercise, they designated two battleships as pretend aircraft carriers. And each battleship, this was um, this was one of the standard practices. Uh, this was an, a, a pretended attack on the Suez Canal by a you know by the enemy, who was almost always Japanese. Uh, from from the Pacific, so these two battleships are designated as aircraft carriers, and because we don't have an aircraft carrier, and um, in the course of the maneuvers, they uh, they sail down the Pacific coast uh, from San Diego and uh, approach Panama, and uh, each battleship launches one seaplane. And the seaplane is a stand-in, of course, for a squadron of aircraft. And the seaplane makes uh, various attacks and and are you know are, are scored as yes, this was this was successful. You disabled some of the locks. You did this and that. In the after-action report, the the, cap, the commander of one of the battleships gives an outstanding critique of the exercise. He points out that um, uh, had we should have launched the attack at dawn because it would have given us more of the element of surprise. He made some comments about how the, you know, how, how escorts should be provided and so on. Most battleship generals had, had come to recognize that the day of the battleship was not, not necessarily passed, but that this newfound thing was going to help us fight. And, in fact, the, the most famous of the early naval air, uh, airmen, uh, um, Admiral Reeves, uh, was a battleship guy. He had commanded a battleship. You know, then he went over to aviation, and um, uh, he was the guy who, who taught the Navy. In fact, he was more daring than the airmen in trying to figure out what, what you could and couldn't do and how, how you would operate an aircraft carrier. Uh, there's a famous story in which uh, uh, he's, uh, uh, he's on the Langley, and the Langley only has 14 planes because they, they, they line them up neatly on deck. So he shows up one day with another dozen or so planes, I forget how many, you know, on the dock, and he proceeds to have the entire crew, including the officers and himself, in their shirt sleeves, heaving planes around on the deck, so that they can create, you know, the the, the sort of weird, weird um, uh, integrated puzzle of of planes that we see sometimes in uh, pictures of World War II carriers, where there's dozens of planes lined up, you know, sort of 
like a like a picture puzzle. And and the airman, you know, oh, no, you can't, you know, and you can't put twenty something planes on her. Well, he found out that you could, and and uh, and it was just by getting up there and doing it. And he did a lot of other similar daring stuff that you would do. So they actually did think. Uh, I mean, there were a few guys that ah, no, nothing's going to hurt us. Meanwhile, of course, the torpedoes had already proven that they could sink battleships. So we got this problem with submarines. Uh, and as the carriers became on, they became more and more and more daring in their experimentation. They still thought, as did the Japanese, that um, there would be a that the carriers were 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 a partner. Uh, or, or slightly inferior to the battleship, that they were going to find the enemy and they were going to soften up the enemy, and then the battleships would come in and shoot them up, and then the um, you know the planes would would the carriers would take over and uh, and and sink what was left as they, as they were running away. And you can see that in a lot of the maneuvers, they were already doing stuff that uh, would be done in the Second World War without battleships. For example, the uh, uh, in, in uh, they began to build the task force around the carrier because of, it, of its value. Uh, and, uh, and then although initially the, uh, the carrier Carrier could move, would maneuver independently of the fleet when launching planes. They they, they reached a point where they move, they would move the whole fleet, while the you know so that the because the carrier has to move the plane um, move into the wind to launch planes. Uh, so so they were they were really you know experimenting and you would read the you read the critiques, and frequently the battleship guys are saying really positive, making positive recommendations for the use of carriers. Now, one of the things that, that, that we need to remember about the Navy in those days was everybody was, a, was, a, was basically a battleship guy, including the aviators. They all, everyone began as a surface warfare officer. Then if you got your wings, you could become an airman. But you could, in the course of your career as an airman, find yourself commanding a destroyer for a while and then going back to you know commanding a uh, a fighter squadron or or a carrier group air group or something um, and that was extremely important uh, nowadays the navy is kind of stovepiped you know they have the aviation community and the submarine community and the surface warfare community and then various supporting communities um, but in those days you would find people go literally going back and forth uh, in World War II, let me see. Um, the the guy who who had who um, was the commander of Lakehurst when the Hindenburg blew up was a well-known Navy airshipman who had actually commanded uh, one of the big air uh, uh, airships at one point and had been a, been assigned to the Hindenburg on one, for one or two of her trips. He said, during World War II, he, he commanded a cruiser. And there are other cases of airmen doing the same thing. That never happens today, of course. Uh, so they, they, they understood each other's, well, the surface guys didn't necessarily understand the airmen that well, but because the airmen were fully cognizant of 
our surface op- war- you know warriors thought they could they could bring them on and you see uh, uh, as I guess as a good example uh, um, Fletcher the only man in history to command in three carrier battles who was often criticized by airmen for being cautious um, did not lose his battles now, now that's something to be said he was a battleship guy uh, he was uh, he was cautious uh, because he had to be cautious because he understood the limitations of, of the fleet at that time there were no tankers one of the things you'll read in criticisms of him is he was he was always stopping to refuel. Well, yeah, because he had one, he only had one tanker, and if the tanker goes, the task force goes. And one, you know, one of those little things. And uh, and uh, Spruance was also a surface warfare guy. And you know, and these two guys, you know, were perfectly able to conduct carrier operations. Uh, Spruance made his headquarters on a cruiser. And Halsey, who's supposed to be this big carrier guy, made his headquarters on a battleship, which is kind of odd. Um, but yeah, the, and Halsey's interesting. I don't know if any of the other ones did this, but you know, he was a surface guy, but he earned his wings so that he could understand air operations, right? Uh, no, uh, actually, though there was a little bit of that, but uh, more of it was that. Uh, in 19 was in 1923 when uh, aviation was established in effect as a separate branch of the navy uh, in fact there was even a, a suggestion that the aviation become sort of like the marine corps which which of course was a branch of the navy in those days that you would enlist not in the navy but you would enlist in naval aviation but uh the law that set up uh this new aviation branch did two things it gave it it created the post of vice vice chief of naval operations for air you know but it also said that air aircraft carriers air aircraft tenders air bases had to be commanded by qualified aviation aviation qualified officers well in 1923 you didn't have any aviation qualified officers who had reached the rank of captain to command an aircraft carrier say right um, so what they did was they instituted a sort of crash course for senior officers you know who who could earn either their wings or something called observer in other words the second cockpit guy, you know second guy in the cockpit um, and so a lot of guys who who thought their prospects for getting you know higher rank weren't that great went over to aviation, which is how Admiral Reeves did it. Admiral Reeves was also in his fifties when he got his uh, got his wings, um, and um, in fact I think Halsey never flew again after he got his wings. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, um, but. Um, uh, a lot of guys did that, and and it was very good for them. In one case, there was a guy who, uh, uh, God, I can't remember his name now, who had his wings, and discovered that his chances of being promoted to captain 
were not good because every slot in the Navy that required an aviation-qualified captain was full. But there was a heavy cruiser that needed a captain. So he switched back to being a surface warfare guy. And he ended up as an admiral. Is it Kincaid? I'm not sure. Maybe Kincaid. I don't remember. But that also gave him sort of the extra bite. You know, he understood aviation as well as he understood surface. Because uh, there were at times, of course, the uh, uh, the airmen were, were uh, in their own way as arrogant as the the um, uh, stereoty- stereotypical battleship guy. When uh, when they issued when they finally began to uh, one of the one of the curious things about the manu- the early parts of the maneuvers were uh, I should go back to that first. Um, these the reason they're called fleet problems is because they really were a problem. And it was it was sort of framed like a scientific experiment. What they would do is they would say what would what would happen if and you know uh, what would happen if the uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl, well you know uh, F- Fleet Red attacked uh, Panama uh, you know what what could we do to prevent this uh, in these circumstances and so on you know um, and then they would assign the two fleets and they would give them each their task and they would see what happened and and sometimes they would discover that what happened was totally unexpected. Uh, in one case, in fact, nothing happened, literally, because the fleet advancing from Hawaii on Panama and the fleet advancing from Panama to intercept those guys missed each other because reconnaissance planes at that point could only go out about 50 miles. So the only way you could find anybody was the same way you did back in Nelson's day, and that was that a ship had to spot another ship. And the conclusions from that exercise were that, um, you know, it it was surprising, but it's realistic. It's bound to happen. What can we do about it? So they really did state it as a problem. What lessons can we learn from this? And they would try to institute new new lessons. The early uh, problems were were not necessarily rigorously um, uh, scored because nobody knew how to score them. Uh, but that began to change, and, and after the first three or four, they began to set up rules, and uh, they would estimate, you know, what's, what's the possibility of hitting? And they would do these, you know, calculations, and, you know, like, um, it, a battleship firing a broadside might be expected to make one hit in, you know, out of every so many shots. And it wasn't it wasn't a very high uh, percentage either. They They were... They, had, they were not, you know, overly optimistic. Um, so anyway, the um, uh, in the book I have a graph that illustrates this. The uh, the rules, the various rules and whatnot, included rules, of course, for bombing, and there were uh, there were rules for high altitude bombing. Uh, and basically, the, the the Navy was right in saying that this is stupid. There's apparently only one case in the entire history of World War II in which a maneuvering ship was hit by a bomb from a bomber at very high altitude. You know, 10,000 feet or more. And um, uh, 
in fact, during the Mediterranean war in the Mediterranean, they figured out that you needed a squadron of B-17s to sink a single five-knot tanker to make sure you could sink it. They would drop, uh, well, what's that? Four, uh, there's four tons of bombs on each, and there's 12 planes in a squadron, right? So that's how many? 48? 48, uh, what, 48 tons? Did that come out? Four, well, anyway, four tons times 12. Yeah, 48. Yeah, 48 tons of bombs would guarantee the sinking of one five-knot freighter. Yeah, and that actually was the you know from, from relatively high altitude. So anyway, the airmen, of course, were very upset about this, and uh, they wanted more liberal rules. Well, it turned out that the rules as established were, were even the ones that the airmen said were wrong were still more optimistic than actual practice in the Second World War, even for dive bombing, which, which was the one that came closest to being uh, the same as, as uh, was in the, in the final set of rules. So they had these rules for that thing. Um, let's see, what other... What other um, uh, there was no script. No script. Basically, each side got its directions and said, you know, you, your job is to you know, surprise Pearl Harbor sometime in the next two weeks. And the other side is, well, you'll, you know, defend Pearl Harbor. You know, defend Hawaii, actually. And they didn't do that very well. And uh, um, I forget how many times uh, we conduct the, the, the fleet conducted surprise attacks on Pearl Harbor. Uh, that, um, in fact, once they did it twice during the same maneuvers. They hit it, went away, came back two or three days later, and hit it again. And uh, they were not prepared both times, which uh, tells you something. Uh, and so they would, you know, they would get out there and do these maneuvers and try to figure out how what, what was the most optimal uh, way to do things. Now, the interesting thing is that their budget was extremely tight because this is the twenties, and everybody's you know cutting the budget because all this money being wasted on national defense should be invested in the stock market, which is doing great. So they kept cutting the budget and cutting the budget. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, the crash comes and they cut the budget some more, uh, which had positive effects in some ways. Uh, so they, the, the limitations on the, on the maneuvers imposed by the budget cuts actually proved useful in some ways because – it, ref it, it, it sort of allowed maneuvers to be done as if we'd just taken a big hit. In one year, for example, uh, it, the, the least complex of all the, the maneuvers, I guess it would be, it would have been, uh, they had two aircraft, the Saratoga and the Lexington, with small task forces, which by then had already been defined as a, as a couple of heavy cruisers and some destroyers which is what basically, you know, we go into the beginning of World War II with. Uh, and the, the idea was that the, the two carriers would conduct a series of raids on the West Coast from Hawaii. Um, one of them would hit San, uh, San Diego, San Diego, San Pedro area, while the other hit the San Francisco area. And then 
the two would proceed so that the first one would, would go from San Diego, San Pedro, to hit San Francisco a second time, while the, the second task group would go up and hit the uh, 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 the bases up in uh, in, um, um, in in Washington. So uh, uh, the maneuver did several things. The first was that they discovered that battle, that aircraft carriers are extremely vulnerable to battleships because your 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 the range of your planes in 1930 whatever uh, was not enough. The carrier had to come with very close to the you know the the targets to launch planes, and the defensive force was able to you know deploy across, along the coast. And there were a number of cases where literally one of the battleships was you know supposedly sunk by a battleship. Just, you know the fog cleared, and you know they were trying to they were trying to hit uh, San Francisco. The fog cleared. And out of the fog emerged a battleship. Uh, so this was something they learned. There were two things they learned. The first was the vulnerability of carriers to battleships. And the second was that these small task forces could prove very effective. Uh, carriers operating alone, which had first been tested in 1929, uh, when, when a carrier and a single cruiser uh the, again, they were practicing an attack on Panama. Uh, they, um, the original plan of the attack was that the fleet would go down to the Galapagos, and from the Galapagos, the whole fleet would then, uh, you know, attack Panama from an unexpected direction. The budget was was too um, slender to pay for the fuel. So they just sent, uh, I think, the Saratoga and one cruiser down to the Galapagos, and while the main fleet was proceeding directly, these guys, since they're, the carriers were very high speed, these guys went to the Galapagos and then came up and attacked Panama just about the time the fleet arrived, uh, which, which you know, gave a victory to that side, although the, the, uh, they, uh, they did take some losses. Uh the uh, one other aspect of the fleet problems that's extremely important and very sensitive, especially nowadays, is the post-exercise critique. There's several issues here. They literally would sit down days after, like like the one in Panama that I just described. The fleet, you know, would run the, if after the maneuvers. The fleet would rendezvous at, uh, you know, at um, whichever end of the canal they were going to, because uh, sometimes the fleet would go into the Atlantic and then visit New York and whatnot. And, um, and they, so they rented a theater, and 700 officers, you know, came in. Everybody had, you know, like so many, so many days to prepare their reports, and the reports were handed in, and you know. And they had a public critique of the maneuvers. And if you read some of the criticism, it it would be a career-ending blow today. Literally, um, um, right in front of all these officers in one of these exercises, the um, the, the fleet command, the commander in chief of the fleet, who didn't take part of the exercises, he was he was sort of the chief umpire. Commander-in-Chief of the Fleet 
you know, re- reviews the uh, uh, report of one of the fleet commanders, one of the exercise commanders, and basically says, you're fighting the problem. You're not, you're, not, you're not solving the problem. You're fighting the problem. As the guy was making all sorts of excuses for an extremely stupid maneuver. Uh, and that other guy, you know, his career continued. And, you know, he, he didn't make four stars, but he was only two stars to begin with. So um, that doesn't mean that it, it hurt his career. And there were some guys who were on the losing end that did extremely well. Uh, what else? There's an incident in the fleet problems. When, uh, purely by chance, you had the Battle of Midway occur. Uh, That's in the Caribbean. Mostly they were in the Pacific, but every once in a while they'd hold maneuvers in the the Caribbean. And there was also uh, subsequent maneuvers in the Caribbean that purely by accident, we, we had four aircraft carriers in the same place. So ancillary to the actual maneuvers, this is in 39, um, Halsey took the four carriers out and and sort of played around with what could we do with four carriers, you know, as a single task force. And a photograph of that was one of the things that inspired, uh, what's his name, Genda? Genda, right? Uh, to say, you know, if we grouped all our carriers together, we would have this unbelievably powerful strike force. Uh, So that was a bad one. The maneuvers in the Caribbean in 1939 were the only time maneuvers were undertaken, the, the fleet maneuvers were undertaken, deliberately undertaken for a political purpose. That was because um you had a number of quasi-fascist regimes in Latin America. In fact, in Brazil, the um, the president dictator was openly proclaiming, you know, that he was an adherent to the to the new order. Uh, and of course, 1939, the Spanish Civil War had just ended, and so the fleet problem was designed the premise of the fleet problem was that there was this country uh, which was sort of like Venezuela, Guyana and the northern bit of Brazil in which a fascist coup had occurred and it had fallen into civil war and that a, a foreign power from Europe was coming to interfere in the civil war to aid the fascist faction and to to underwrite the lesson, President Roosevelt went down to take part in the maneuvers aboard the Houston and had the honor of being sunk in the course of the maneuvers, actually, which must have been interesting. Uh, the president went along on the fleet problems a couple of times, uh, which was important because these were public, these were advertised. We're currently, we're currently uh, undertaking a series of um, maneuvers that uh, are are supposedly based on the same premises and whatnot, but there is no reporting about them. Uh, whereas the fleet maneuvers in the, between the wars, uh, in the preparation of the book, I actually turned up 500 newspaper articles about the maneuvers, some of them written by reporters 
who was standing right next to the admiral, you know, during the maneuvers, or actually by naval officers who took part in them. Hanson Baldwin, the, the famous New York Times uh, uh, military uh, uh, correspondent, was an Annapolis graduate, and he was a welcome guest on uh, pretty much any fleet maneuver, fleet exercise that he couldn't, uh, he wanted. Uh, there was some censorship, especially as as the years went by. Um, in the early ones, there was there was virtually no censorship, but beginning about 1930, they began to realize that uh, uh, some things, especially carrier deck operations, had to be uh, uh, kept kept under wraps. And, and the arresting gear. Did you ever see the movie? Um, Helldivers? The, I'm not talking about the one with um, Ronald Reagan. The, the 1930 movie with uh, Wallace Beery and um, and, the, and a disgracefully young Clark Gable. And I forget who the other guy is. Uh, there's actually a scene in there where they literally black out half the frame. As they're showing the, you know, the the plane's landing. Uh, that was to conceal the the, um, the the you know the the, the cabling and whatnot. Uh, that film, by the way, is an excellent example of how the Navy thought a major sea battle would be fought at the time. Uh, and you actually see their thinking. You know, the the planes are out there softening up the enemy ships. The battleships go in, the submarines, they, there was this crazy idea that submarines might take part in, in fleet actions, you know. While the battleships on the surface are slugging it out and the planes are, you know, the submarines would be sneaking around underneath trying to torpedo the enemy, which didn't work. Uh, but the picture is very good for, for, for showing that. Um, but um, the, the current crop of fleet problems, uh, you, you never see anything in, in uh, reported about them. And uh, uh, I, I received one phone call when, someone's, when someone, someone called me and said, you wrote the book about the fleet problems. You know the Navy is starting a new set of fleet problems. What's your clearance? And my clearance had just expired. <laughs> and that is the only thing I ever heard from the Navy about the fleet problems since. Which I think is actually kind of silly because, well, it, well, you know, yes, I don't have a clearance, so obviously I shouldn't be allowed to see a lot of stuff. But that doesn't mean that there isn't stuff I, sh I could see that I would suggest, you know, there's, hey, they tried this in, you know, 1928. Or, uh, in fact, one of the things I, I mentioned in the book in talking about all the experimentation that they were doing, they did a lot of, uh, you know, works work in uh, electronics when they're trying to figure out how to do things and a lot of it didn't work and it, it occurred to me while I was doing the book that it did it not work because the concept was totally wrong or did it not work because you just didn't have the technology to make your idea work you know uh, I mean all of it might 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 have worked and we might have better stuff to do the same thing so it doesn't matter but you know it was one of those things um, but yeah, the, um, so I want to draw Jim into this conversation. What sort of fleet problems should the fleet be running today? What, what would they be testing out? What would they be looking at? 
or you know from your perspective what should they do well some uh, results of the uh, contemporary uh, fleet problems have indicated that they're <laughs> they're concentrating on China and that they feel there are some serious problems with like Al pointed out technology which nobody has really seen used yet now we've covered a lot of this in strategy page which is unclassified and one of the biggest things is the uh, uh, the ballistic missile that can basically uh, act like a an anti-ship missile uh, with the with the terminal homing uh, technology, where the uh, once you get the general location of the of the target, you don't have to get the exact location. And we described how you use uh, you know, earth sensing satellites, which are available, and how they work, etc. Um, which the Chinese already have up over the Pacific. And uh, but the 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 key unknown was the uh, the terminal you know homing. Now we had developed that technology in the 1980s and deployed it in the Pershing missile. And I did several <laughs> unclassified appearances on TV explaining why this was important because it was basically about one of the Russians' worst nightmares, namely decapitation attacks. Uh, they they kept secret where their 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 wartime command bunkers were. But we made it known often through, you know, uh, egregious leaks um, that we knew. Uh, and that, that, in one case, uh, led to the construction, rapid construction of a new and more secret, you know, bunker. But in the 19, in, at the time when the, uh, when the Persian missile was deployed uh, to, uh, to Europe with this new uh, terminal homing technology, which had been proven, you know, in tests, and the Russians knew that, uh, they were terrified that if they went to war with us, their 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 leadership would disappear because we had a missile, a ballistic missile, which that's the Pershing was, but a short range ballistic missile uh, that could basically pin hit a pinpoint target, you know, with a with a nuclear warhead. Uh, we did we had ground penetrating uh, uh, warheads, but <coughs> their their uh, bunkers were deep. Uh, but they, they did the math and they realized a small nuclear warhead that the Persian could carry uh, would basically collapse these uh, uh, neutralize or liquidate, as they like to put it, these sites. And they saw that as a, a secret weapon that was a very real and present danger. Now, there were two things going on there which, uh, which came up in the Pacific with psychology. The, uh, the Russians were terrified of American technology. Uh, we, on the other hand, in the Pacific, were ignorant of a lot of the Japanese technology, uh, both you know, uh, you know, in terms of equipment and and training, which was a nasty surprise. Uh, the Japanese, at the same time, <coughs> realized, well, at least the army did, the navy didn't, and this was ironic because it was the navy that was pushing for war and promised that they would do most of the heavy lifting. But the thing is, in the post, in the current uh, war games. Uh, you have to basically, from what I know of them, and I I did work. I I, I didn't I didn't renew my security clearance after I got out of the army either. Um, but I basically they were so desperate, or they basically realized let's be more practical than people are today. Uh, they bring me in, and they'd have the classified stuff going on in one room, and I'd be out in another room with an unclassified version. Sometimes they were using games I designed, you know, for SPI, uh, or or published somebody else had designed. And uh, they come out and say, 
what are the probabilities of uh, you know uh, you know this this classified missile system and what have you? And I realized what was going on. And I said, well, it could vary between X and Y. And I, I mentioned, you know, two data points. And I says, you know, and, and basically, if you really want to test, uh, thoroughly test for that, uh, basically set up a, uh, change the probability charts so that you basically can step up and go through as many steps as you want. Uh, that's, that's a version of Monte Carlo testing, which the computer geeks at that in those days were, were keen on. And they said, okay. And that apparently worked sufficiently. And they were able to be used the games that we had already developed. And they knew that the historical aspects of the games, based upon, you know, uh, I think at that point that the most most recent uh, combat example was the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. Um, and the Israelis had shared some of their uh, classified analysis of, of what went on there uh, versus equipment, uh, effectiveness and what have you. And of course, all you had to do was look at the uh, the new equipment they Israelis started developing, you know, after the '73 war. Uh, we did the same thing for the current Hamas war after the 2014 war. We did lots of pieces, again, all unclassified, uh, but pointing out that the the uh, uh, the Israelis were doing this, they were doing that. And indeed, two of the things we pointed out, one, which was very dull. I mean, we publish a lot of stuff. People say, oh, my God, this is boring. But it was the automation of the Israeli um, uh, air, de- air, air defense warning system. You know, there was the, 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 the uh, alert uh, sirens that would go off and tell civilians that to immediately, you know, seek cover. And uh, the, uh, the Israelis had used their Iron Dome system. Which was which which came online. Uh, God, what was it? It was before. It was uh, geez, about ten, fifteen years ago. And um, and they had they had they, every time they uh, they used it, they calculated the uh, the effect of this and the uh, the accuracy of the missiles. Because one of the brilliant things about Iron Dome is, although it uses missiles to shoot down che- expensive missiles to shoot down cheap rockets. It has it uses software, which 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 basically calculates the ballistic trajectory of each uh, rocket, and then basically uh, predicts where it's going to land. And they have maps which indicate you know which areas are un, un basically you know unoccupied. Or there's no residential areas or no military you know targets, and these uh, Iron Dome will ignore. And that often is like 80 or 90 percent of the incoming rockets. But the 10% or 20% that are going to hit a residential area or a military target, they will intercept. And they intercept those uh, uh, initially at about 80-85% uh, the time, and now it's 90% or more. And that's why the uh, the uh, you know the, uh, the the Hamas fired uh, about four times as many uh, rockets um, uh, this uh, in this uh, recent attack than they did in uh, 2014. But they did far. They they one tenth the damage, um, and that basically is the one thing they should be worried about. I don't know if, I'll, if that'll get a lot of coverage in the in the in the media, but we report it. But anyway, the fleet programs have to address the same things as I'll pointed out. Um, and during the 1930s, they not only had war plane orange, uh, but it went through I think at least ten major revisions. I think the last one was uh, went into effect in uh, 1938. But what they they did, in effect, take into account new technology, but only as it was fielded. In other words, they were 
Navy was the original adopter, as we have to we have to plan to go with war, to war with the Navy we got, and which the enemy's got, uh, and uh, that's why they basically had to uh, adopt innovations like expanding the Marine Corps. Uh, the first Marine Division, F six, uh, was organized in uh, in 1940. Uh, the LST, which the British uh, invented for a, a eventual you know uh, return to uh, Europe. Uh, we were the major warship builder during the, the war, bar none, um, and we had to build them, and uh, we managed to get uh, use of them, a lot of them in the a lot more of them in the Pacific than we should have, uh, because you know what could the British really do about it? Um, something else again. Speaking of new technology, uh, there's a family connection with this. My father had a curious uh, history in, in World War II. He went in the army. He was drafted. And his his first assignment was on a PT boat. It was army PT boats. But anyway, these were the boats that were that were requisitioned by the the army uh, in forty two, uh, forty yeah forty two when when the uh, the uh, the German subs were basically going wild <laughs> off our coast because we had no protections. And uh, while well, the, the PT boat only had a couple of fifty caliber machine guns, its main uh, its main function was to pick up. Uh, you know any survivors, uh, which was not that, which was ser- serious even in a warm area like the the Caribbean. But anyway, when he was through with that, he was a radio technician, and they they assigned him to a, a secret op- a secret uh, R and D operation in in Miami, Florida, where they requisitioned some of the hotels, and that's where they garrisoned the uh, the troops. So my father said, you know. Uh, he never really spent much time in an army barracks. He was living in a uh, somewhat crowded, you know, hotel room. But anyway, what he was working on was the American guided bomb, the Azon and the Tazon. Now that the the Germans were ahead of us with this, they sank a a, a, a Italian battleship after the Italians you know, switched sides in in '43. Uh, <clears throat> but they had far less opportunity to use it because they didn't have air superiority. Uh, but we did get it into action uh, by early '45. And we used them to sink quite a few uh, ships. Now, most of them, there were a few uh, Japanese warships, uh, you know, cruising around the Pacific in those days. Uh, by early 45, they were husbanding all their strength. But there was occasionally a, a stray, you know, troop ship or, or a supply ship, which was obviously carrying out a vital mission. And it was often protected by a lot of machine guns and what have you. Uh, and at what Al says is right about, you know, uh, bombing, you know, uh, uh, even something as mundane as a slow-moving, uh, you know, merchant ship. But the, the Azon-Tazon guided plane hit practically every time and from a safe distance. You know, none of the aircraft used, usually it was a, a two-engine bomber, um, was ever hit by any aircraft fire. And they, they used it even more effectively in, in, the, in, this, in Asia, in Southeast Asia. Uh, the Japanese did have several bridges which were heavily defended uh, by anti-aircraft guns, um, and attacks using manned aircraft had had failed. Um, and we went in there with a couple of those azon tazon bombs and took those bridges down. So technology you have to always be careful of because it's always in development, and it'll always it'll always sneak up and hit you, you know, when you least expect it. I mean. Think, for example, with the Japanese technology, we we estimated that their their torpedoes uh, were no more effective than ours. Now, of course, it turns out our our torpedoes were ineffective to the extent that you know you basically had uh, submarine captains marching on the on the on the naval torpedo 
uh, 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 bureaucracy where was in Washington, you know, complaining that, you know, it, this thing does not work um, because the uh, the bureaucracy said, oh, no, of course it works. But it turns out it didn't work. They had to modify. But in the meantime, the Japanese had developed a heavy, heavier, heavier torpedo, which was very reliable. Uh, in training, they had also developed, again, something we missed. They they trained uh, extensively at night and not only, you know, to maneuver at night, but also the spot enemy the enemy first at night now this is before radar now we eventually developed radar uh much before the japanese could and that basically you have a sentence but in 1942 and, and uh, into 43 the japanese had an edge and that's what basically was the key uh, to some of the uh, the japanese victories in uh, surface uh actions uh, in uh, the Guadalcanal, south the battle of save Sable island for example uh, when, it, when all was said and done, it turned out the key factor there was uh, was spotting uh, them spotting us first because yeah. they had superior, uh, you know, lookouts, trained lookouts who who could pick out things at night better than the the uh, the Western ones. But anyway, this this is, a, this is a good example of learning a lesson badly. Yes. Um, in um, in what is it, 1938, I think, <clears throat> the Navy during the fleet maneuvers. The Navy fitted experimental radar to the battleships New York and uh, Texas. And then they went out and did maneuvers. And uh, I think it was the New York, uh, during the course of night action in the maneuvers, basically wiped out a destroyer squadron, you know, figuratively. Uh, it, the, no one had spotted it, but the radar spotted it. <clears throat> so at that point... The Navy, in effect, stopped worrying about night fighting. And it's, it, it's very funny because Admiral um, – um, oh, gosh, the guy before, uh, before Kimmel, who was replaced – I can't think of his name now – who later claimed that there was all this big conspiracy. You know, In his memoirs, which said, had we known that we would have to do fight, night fighting, we would have trained more, right? <laughs> what happened was – that radar that was on the New York was exactly the same, slightly, you know, older model uh, as the radar that failed that failed in effect at Savo Island. Now, why was that? <clears throat> because in 1938, the guys sitting there and operating the radio equipment were the scientists and engineers who had developed the radio equipment and been working with it. Savo Island, the guys operating the radar equipment, you know, had been behind the plow six months before. They were young kids, quickly trained, and the, the critical thing, no experience in using radar. So they, they had difficulty, especially in those waters, you know, figuring out who was what when they saw blips, and they couldn't figure out uh, whereas an experienced guy could, where there was a, a, a land return as opposed to a ship return. So the, um, uh, you know, the fleet seriously screwed up its um, ability to fight at night. It took it took a long time. 
Yeah, this uh, this training this training angle is something that the uh, that that continues to this day. For example, uh, after after a couple of decades of embarrassing failures, you know, the uh, the, the industry would develop a, a new weapon uh, for you know anybody, the army, the navy, the air force, uh, and demonstrate it just like Al described. And uh, the, the services, especially the the army and the um, the Navy learned the hard way that a weapon isn't ready for troop use unless it's been tested with the troops in a realistic exercise. And those exercise, those 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 tests, as it were, often had to be repeated several times, much to the dis- dismay of the of the contractor and much to the pleasure, as so to speak, of the the military, because they realize you can't trust promises. Uh, you're not going to, you know, basically, it's a matter of life and death. Now that's something that has always been contentious ever since. Uh, the uh, you know the uh, uh, the contractors have since come out with computer simulations, which they swear up and down are you know are are an adequate substitute for you know taking their expensive baby out there and letting the troops you know mess mess with it uh, <laughs> and failing to realize the irony <laughs> that's exactly what they were supposed to be developing you know a, a soldier proof or a sailor proof you know piece of equipment. Uh, so something's never changed. I think it's human nature, um, and uh, and one thing we have to be afraid of now, uh, and you know that's why that's why they, they wanted to make sure Al had a, a security clearance they could grab him by the neck by because maybe I think they knew you know you and you and I were you know cronies and what have you and uh, war gamers the war game mafia as it were uh, they, we could screw things up because even a realistic war game. Uh, could point out your problems. I mean, the classic example of that is uh, when we were developing the uh, the, the uh, Arab-Israeli war game before '73, before that war broke out, and we had a scenario for a future war, you know, based upon the current situation. And when the war started, uh, one of the war gamers that was regularly visiting on Friday Night Follies, uh, you know, we we knew he was Israeli. He wore a kippah, you know, yarmulke with his tank tank symbol of his uh, of his unit, his reserve unit he belonged to back th- back home. <laughs> Uh, and he was he came to me and quietly said, "Look, I'm under orders. Don't tell anybody." Well, I can now. And um, he says that they want me to uh, look at uh, study your game more intensively. I don't know if we gave him a copy of the. It hadn't been published yet, but yeah, we did. Uh, I sat down with him one on one, where we could speak freely, and how we did this, we did with that, with that, and basically we predicted everything that happened. That the the Israeli military planning had not. You know, uh, uh, say now that went into the the, the Israeli you know uh, after action report system, which is more effective than ours because they said, all right, geez, even if a bunch of American game designers could could predict what the uh, what was going to happen to us, you know, we should we should adopt that technology. Um, yeah, they don't care where they get the solution from as long as they get a solution that works. Um, and again, this is still a problem. Uh, Al and I encountered this many times with the uh, with the military, the Navy, lead with the Army and the Air Force, uh, because they really believe their own you know propaganda a little too much. Um, and uh, I think a lot of the early things we did in Strategy Page was we gave explicit examples of how that worked, and that did convert a lot of people. And but unfortunately, it took a decade or more until these the the converted were usually junior or mid level officers, and until they became generals. <laughs> 
you couldn't tell them directly and so they would understand, you know, what a problem was. And, you know, so I think by the 90s, you know, we were more respected, and especially after 2001, um, that, uh, you know, if they asked me a question, unclassified, I gave them a good, as a good answer as I could. I never mentioned the classification problem because I knew they had it. I knew it existed. Uh, and, and I basically solved a lot of problems with one usually face-to-face conversation. Uh, they didn't. They didn't want to entrust this stuff, you know, to a telephone or email, especially. Uh, and uh, so the problem still exists. But the Navy had it solved better than anybody else. The uh, the Germans outplayed us, as it were, in terms of a land-based war games. Um, and but we were the premier, as it were, in the in the naval war games. The Japanese also had naval war games, which they had to use in order to develop the. Uh, the operational, you know, uh, maneuver of crossing the North Pacific, which is, you think the North Atlantic is rough in, in rough weather? It's worse in the Pacific. Everything's worse in the Pacific. It's bigger. It's better. And they realized the biggest risk they were taking was underway replenishment because they had to constantly, uh, uh, you know, refuel. No nuclear carriers. They had battleships with them as well. Um, and uh, their, their, biggest, their, their biggest obstacle was logistics, which it usually is. Uh, but once they got through, they, they met one, uh, one, far, one ship, which they, they expected it might be one or two, and uh, they sank it. I don't know if it was Japanese or not. It didn't make any difference. It's just, you know, it, it was reported later to, I guess, hey, it was lost at sea. It was in the North Atlantic, in the North Pacific, in the, in the, in the, in the bad weather, and that explains everything. Um, but... The uh, that just goes to show you that even the Japanese depended a lot on war games. Now, the the, the classic you know example of how to misuse them was the uh, was the the war game they played for a battle of uh, Midway, uh, or a, a major you know air battle which mainly involved carrier aircraft, and uh, their game showed a number of carriers being sunk, and the Japanese admirals watching said, "No, that's unrealistic. Let's bring them back to life." And of course, there was no takebacks in the Battle of Midway. Yeah. One um, um, was quite amusing thing that happened <clears throat> because these things got in the paper. There were always the, sort of the usual suspects claiming that the maneuvers were uh, threats of war on both sides of the ocean, you know. Uh, and um, uh, you know, intimidating Japan and so. And so one year. Uh, the U.S. had announced it was having maneuvers in, uh, in the North Pacific, and some some hysterics in the U.S. were claiming, you know, this is close to the Coral Islands and so on. Uh, the Japanese woman Navy minister said, "We don't feel on, you know, we we don't feel uncomfortable about this at all." He literally. Was saying in professional courtesy, I guess, you know, <laughs> um, you know, navies have to practice, and we're not worried about it, and so on. And in fact, of course, the, the distance from where they were conducting maneuvers and the number of ships involved was insignificant. <coughs> uh, the, the Japanese always thought we might come down from that route, but uh, once we once we got uh, had to Akishka back, we realized that it was. You know, literal insanity to attempt major operations from up there against uh, against northern Japan. 
So we just cut back to about 100,000 people up there and turned it into a humongous deception operation. Yeah, the, the Japanese, as much as they appreciated the, 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 the uh, unfriendly climate up there, uh, they somehow assumed that we had found a way around it. But yeah. there's no defeating Mother Nature when it comes to bad weather in the North Pacific. It's still a problem. That's why yeah. so many people use sub nuclear submarines now. And there's no defeating Father Time. Uh, We're we're out of time. And so... Can I I give me a a plug for the book? Yeah. If if anyone listening wants to buy the book, it's called To Train the Fleet for War. Do not buy it from certain online sellers where they are... You know, people are offering them for like a hundred bucks and stuff. Yeah. You get... uh, Just check with the government printing office or the Naval War College Press. Okay. You know, you gave me a copy, copy, Al, and I had much less. I had mislaid it in moving around and like that, and so I'll uh, get myself another copy of it because oh. it's it's a fascinating subject. I, I can send you the PDF. I mean, if you okay, that'd be great too. <laughs> okay. All right. Take care. We'll, we'll talk bye to bye you bye. both next time. Bye bye. <laughs>